Heavenly Father, what a glorious morning. What a glorious time to be in this building with our friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. We thank you for the blessing that that is, Father. It takes a day away or a month away or a a season away to really appreciate why it's important to be here. And I thank you, Father, that you remind us in that from time to time. You reminded me last week as I was off and away. You brought back to my heart the desire to be with those whom you have called into this fellowship, and I thank you for that. And we unite, Father, for your purposes. We come here, Father, with your priorities on our heart, that you would be glorified, your name declared above all names, the truth of the gospel be shared with all humanity as you might appoint, Father, that we would be your ambassadors, introducing a lost and dying world to the truth that Christ, who is our Savior, died for our sins and has given us the opportunity to be reconciled with you, Father. We ask that that would be our heart. And as an ambassador, we would make that our purpose. And in one day, in a small way, we pray that today's lesson and the worship, the prayer and the fellowship would strengthen us for that mission today. There's something in the word today, Father, that you will share with us that will make us that much better prepared to serve you. And I hope, Father, and I pray that all hearts are listening as we enter your word together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Here's where we were. We have Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down that mountain where they got to see Jesus glorified. And last time we were in this book, we were looking at that interesting conversation that they engaged in on the way down, where the disciples asked about Elijah and what his role would be at the end of the age. Remember that? And then as that conversation got started, Jesus quickly turned it to his own circumstances, because what they were wanting was a conversation about uh, the stuff of the future and the, the big things of the end. What Jesus needed them to know was there's some more present circumstances that should be your priority, and that his death and suffering was going to fulfill the purpose of the age, so never mind the end of it, think about the present. And I told you as we studied that, that the disciples' misplaced priorities can be a challenge for any student of the scriptures. Anybody who studies the Bible, especially in the way we do here, methodically, consistently, as you do that, you have to remember that you're trying to maintain a balance in your understanding of what you study. That is to say, you cannot let your interest in the future things that the Bible says are coming, you can't let that interest overshadow your present responsibilities of knowing and serving Jesus in a day-to-day way. And look, you're hearing this from a guy who teaches eschatology all the time. Uh, I would be the first to say it's good to know what God has told us in his word about the future. It's not a bad thing. But we know we're living in the end times. And that is all the more reason to focus now on our witness, on our service. Now, right, the, the knowledge of the future should be directing us to greater service now. And I think that's what Jesus was concerned about. In that case, he had a precious little time left with them. And after that, he hands the church over to these guys for them to lead it. So as they're standing there walking down the hill with him, contemplating a a prophet who's going to come in a distant generation to to some future end-of-the-world scenario, Jesus says to them, hey, man, focus on me here now. I'm with you now. And there's things about to happen And that should be where your focus is right now. That's fine, but think about this. And in a nutshell, that's what the Bible means when it talks about walking in faith. Walking in faith, walking by faith. To walk by faith means this. To live every day in the present knowing that God is at work, that he has a plan, 
that is, we like to say he wins in the end, and yet that plan happens one day at a time in our present life. And so while we acknowledge things like our eternity is secure, and at the end of it all, God will return and make it all perfect. Yes, yes, yes. But let me ask you this. Are you also willing to acknowledge that he rules today in your life? Do you think enough about how you contribute to his plan now? That's walking by faith. And that is the question that drives us into the next section of Matthew 17. And the scene picks up immediately where it left off in Matthew. Jesus and those three men returning from the mountain. Go to verse 14 with me. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. All right, that's Matthew. And he says that as these four men came down the mountain, Jesus and the disciples, they approach a crowd of people, and there's a man in the crowd who comes out, and he falls down before Jesus, and he asks for healing for his son. Now, Matthew really just drops us into this moment with virtually no background. But the background's important, and thankfully, Mark gives it to us. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in Mark, kind of complementary to our Matthew study. So if you have a Bible, as I like to say, if you have a real Bible and not just a phone, you, you could put your, I'm, I'm joking, it's fine if you have a phone, don't, throw, don't send me letters. Um, <laughs> but if you have this kind, just put your finger on Matthew for, uh, 17 and then put it also in Mark 9, because that'll make it easier for you to flip. And Mark 9, 14, we get the same story, but with more detail. Let me give you the detail. Mark 9, 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. All right, so what Mark gives you there is is the additional detail to help you better understand why this scene was happening. And in particular, he tells you that scribes were there arguing, and arguing with the crowd. Now, what that probably means is they were arguing principally with the disciples within the crowd, And as Jesus and the other three disciples approach this argument, the crowd looks up, sees Jesus, and it seems as though they must have left the scribes to run to Jesus, and the scribes don't go with them. They must have stayed behind. Because the scribes don't go with them, Jesus wants to know, what were you guys arguing about? And then you have the one man now who speaks up. And his explanation is that the argument centered on his son's predicament. The problem with his son, not being healed by the disciples, that started the argument, and we have to dig in a little bit to understand what that was about. Now, both Matthew and Mark tell us that the boy is demon-possessed. Now, in Mark's account, you hear that he is possessed. In Matthew's account, there's not a mention of the demon, but they use a word for that day which meant demon-possessed, and the word is lunatic. And we use that word sometimes in different senses, usually in a pejorative sense. But for them, it was a literal sense. It meant demon-possessed. So, in this case, you have a demon living in the boy And as a result, he produces terrible consequences, physical consequences, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, stiffening his body like a seizure. And then most importantly, we're told the boys become mute as a result. Now, back in Matthew, we hear that this demon has also been throwing the child 
into fire or water, which you know, presumably that was an attempt to kill the child. Demons, as you remember from past studies in here, are fallen angels. They're part of the angelic realm that followed after Satan when he rebelled against God. And those fallen angels, which now we call demons, they're bound to serving that master that they followed, to serving Satan. And they do his bidding. And the Bible tells us what Satan's goal is. Jesus elsewhere in the gospel says that Satan is intent on doing three things. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his modus operandi, if you will. And therefore, demons have exactly the same goal. They're supporting their master's goal. One of the tactics that they use in that effort is to occupy human bodies. And by that, I mean unbelievers, because a believer's body cannot be indwelled by a demon. The Spirit of God living in you is a barrier to the demonic world having possession of you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so as they come upon unbelievers and they occupy an unbeliever's body, they have a goal of killing, stealing, and destroying. Now, in this case, you can see all three at work. Number one, they're destroying the body of that child physically, one step at a time. And secondly, they're stealing him away from his father, if you will. The joy of having a healthy son has been taken from the father. And then finally, they're trying to kill the child. And so as Jesus says, these demons are killing, stealing, and destroying. And in the process, they also hope to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who's looking at this scene and watching what happens. Because you may remember the last time we studied demon possession a little bit as it came up in this gospel, I told you that a demon spirit has a particular challenge after it indwells a human body. And that challenge is this. It cannot leave the physical body easily. Once a demon has taken up residence in a human body, it is bound to remain in that physical body as long as that body is alive. It's similar to your own spirit. Your spirit can't leave your body till your body's dead. And as they take up residence in a physical host, they enter into that same binding. And so as a demon may work his uh, goals through that person, they reach a point where they're ready to move on. And when they're ready to move on from that host, they then turn their attention to looking for ways to bring about the death of that host. And they'll do it in a variety of ways. Uh, They may torment the person's mind by speaking to their mind, trying to encourage them to harm themselves, take their own life. This is where you hear stories of people who say, I heard voices telling me to do this. That's demonic activity inside them. Uh, You may see, you remember the story of the pigs from earlier in this study where the pigs are indwelled by the demons and then they run immediately into the sea and drown themselves. That's the demonic realm now having moved into those pigs wishing to get out. They killed the pigs and they're free again. And that's what you see happening here. They're driving this child physically and otherwise to the point of death and probably only his father's mercy for his son has prevented the fire and the water from killing him. So that's the primary method of removing a demon but there's one other method. The only other way that a demon leaves a human body is if God himself forces that demon out, because God obviously can do anything. And we call it casting out, God pushing a demon out of a body. And here's the interesting irony. Demons don't like to be forced out because it ruins the effect of the possession. I mean, they possess people in order to show their opposition to God and to defy God's greatest creation, the human, the human body, the human being. And so they're degrading humanity, they're defying God's power in his creation, Uh, they're they're invoking fear in those who might worship God. Ultimately, that fear among God's people puts into question who's more powerful, God or the enemy? It's all part of their plan. 
So when they're cast out by God, it ruins everything. Because now it restores the person. Well, they didn't hurt the person like they intended. It makes Satan and his demons appear weak because they've been defeated in that moment. And it brings glory to God. Right? So it's completely counter to their purpose. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment before we go further and acknowledge something. We live in an age in which talking like this makes me a certifiable nut. Right? I know, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, man, this is fascinating. I love this. I'll never be able to tell it to anybody I work with, but it's fascinating. <laughs> I can't share this with another person I know, but, you know, that's the world we live in, right? Talk about something supernatural and, you know, you're an idiot. Well, here's where you, you get to put a little test in front of yourself as a Christian. What do you believe, the world or what's in this book? And I'm not saying there's a demon behind every corner, you know that. But what I am saying is they didn't go away. You know, it's not as though demons disappeared after the book of Acts. It's not as if they don't still want to do what they've always done. And in fact, I would argue that they're actually doing more now than they've ever done. But what I'm saying is understanding how they work is a powerful tool in appreciating how we work with God in the face of that opposition, okay? And this is part of the story here. Jesus stepping into a moment in which his own disciples tried to get involved in a demonic test of power, and they were doing the wrong thing. And so that's part of the lesson. That's why I'm spending a moment on this. So demons... And here's the irony I mentioned. Demons who may have been seeking to leave a host for their own reasons will immediately reverse their desire if they're confronted with, the, uh, with somebody trying to cast them out. Where they were trying to get out on their own, now they're resisting at getting out because it ruins the effect if God kicks them out. And that's what you see here. The demons resisting the effort to be expelled from this boy because they don't want to bring glory to God. They want to bring glory to Satan. And that's the situation Jesus has dropped into. And here's where our lesson comes around to the points that I think need to be made. Jesus now has found himself in a position where he's got a mess. A mess that was created by his disciples. And he's got to fix it. And there are three problems he has to fix. He's got the problem with the crowd. He's got a problem with the father of that son. And he's got a problem with his disciples. And it all centers on where they put their faith. And that's where the story goes now. In verse 16, the man tells Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples. I was kind of hoping they could do this problem, fix this problem, and they, they couldn't do it. Now, looking at it from the father's point of view for just a moment, in assuming that Jesus' disciples could depossess his son, that was actually a reasonable assumption on his part because exorcism, as the term goes, and I'm not talking about the movie, okay, but it is the proper term for casting out demons. Exorcism... Is not, was not uncommon in Jesus' day. There were men who God would empower by his spirit to perform this service, if you will, this ministry from time to time. And in an earlier time of this gospel, there was a scene in which uh, Jesus sends out 70 disciples. It's not recorded in Matthew, but it is recorded in Luke. And in that moment, Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples with the power to cast out demons. They went out, they did it, and they came back reporting it. So the thought of the father that maybe these guys could cast out a demon, it was not unreasonable. They had already done it other, under other circumstances, and others in Israel were doing it from time to time. So he thought they could. In Mark 9.14, we're left with the suggestion that as the disciples failed in their effort to cast out this demon, that's what triggered the argument with those scribes. 
And the argument ties back to something we learned in chapter 12. You remember in chapter 12, we had another case of a mute demon being cast out by Jesus. Do you remember that moment? And in that moment, I told you that rabbis in Jesus' day had recognized that when the Messiah came, whoever he would be, he would possess unique power. And those unique powers that the Messiah would have would be his calling card. It would be a way in which he would validate his claims. And so the people of Israel would know him by that power. And one of the unique powers that the rabbis said that the Messiah would have when he came was the ability to cast out demons from people that had been rendered mute by that demon. And here's why that would be so unique. As God allowed men in Israel to exercise demons from time to time, he made them use a specific method. And we know this because we see the method at use in Scripture. And here's the method. The method was that the exorcist had to communicate with the demon that was inside the person's body so as to learn the name of the demon. And if they learned the name of the demon through a conversation with the demon, then they could cast the demon out by name. But you had to know the name of the demon. And there's evidence of this. If you look in Luke chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus does that same method. Uh, If you look at Acts chapter 19, you see Jewish exorcists. Now, they tried to do it the wrong way, and as a result, they get there, you know, a can of whoop, you know what, gets opened up, and (laughs) they don't have a good day. All right, that was the way that the Lord directed Israel to act as they would do demon possession. But look, if and when it worked, who was doing it? The Lord, through them, right? No different than our own spiritual gifts when we put those to work. But the point is, God had specified this method, and here's why. Because when they came upon a person who was made mute by the demon, it became an impediment to learning the name of the demon, and as a result, it prevented the casting out of that demon. So the rabbis recognized correctly that only the Messiah would have the ability to cast out mute demons. And in that way, God had reserved that set of circumstances for his son so that when he came, there would be a way for him to validate himself to Israel. When they saw that miracle, they would know, ah, that's the Messiah because only the Messiah can do that. Back in chapter 12, when Jesus cast out the mute demon, do you remember what the crowd's reaction was? They said, oh, this cannot be the son of David, can it? That is, this can't be the Messiah, can it? They recognized what it meant. But if you also remember, the leaders who were present, the, Israel, the Jewish leaders of Israel who were present, they denied the truth of that and they claimed that it was by Satan's power that Jesus was doing that miracle. It was not proof that he was Messiah. Of course, that was an illogical conclusion, as Jesus points out. All right, so back to this moment. You have Jesus' disciples now failing at their efforts to cast out a mute demon. And of course, we understand why because they weren't going to be able to do it. It was reserved for the Messiah. They couldn't do it. And as they failed in that moment, that's what triggered the argument because the scribes, who were the religious leaders, part of the leadership of Israel, who were present, seized on that moment and said, aha, see, it was all a fraud. They've been looking for a way to discredit what Jesus did from chapter 12 onward. And now his disciples have seemed to give them an opportunity to say, told you he can't do it, told you they're frauds, this isn't real. And of course the disciples argued back, and there they were. Now as Jesus shows up, the crowd moves to him, the scribes see their opportunity go away, and they just slink off for the next chance. Now here's what the disciples did. They made the mistake of presuming that whatever Jesus could do, they could do merely because they're associated with him. And probably because they had opportunity in other circumstances to cast out other demons. But they knew that a mute demon was reserved for the Messiah. Everyone knew that. 
And here they are stepping into that opportunity as if they gained it just by association. And look, if you want to look down your nose at them, fair enough, but every Christian can make this mistake. It's really easy as a believer to make the mistake that just because you are associated with Jesus or, as some might tell you, call on the name of Jesus and whatever you say in the name of Jesus will happen. Try it. You'll get the same result that they did. That's not how that works. That's not what Jesus meant. In the earlier day when Jesus gave those men the power to cast out demons, in that example I mentioned, when the 70 went out, listen to what they said to Jesus immediately after they came back, having done that ministry. It's in Luke 10, and I'll just read the verse, Luke 10, 17. It says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Right? So they were excited, and that's fine. I think that's natural. Don't you feel the same way anytime God works through you in some particular context and you get a result that as you see it come together, you're like, man, God showed up big for me. I needed that. He did it. What a great experience, right? You get that joy. Like, have you ever prayed for somebody in a specific way and then you hear later that exactly what you were praying for is what they received? Maybe you never even told them that you were praying for that. Don't you get that sense of joy, God working through you? Uh, I've had experiences where people say they, they give money to a ministry or to someone in ministry, and they don't know why they didn't talk to the person. They just had a, a feeling from the Lord, give so much money. They find out later that person needed exactly that much money for something, right? You all heard stories like that, right? How does that make you feel when you're on, the, on that side of working with the Lord? Or maybe you felt led to share scripture with somebody. I've had this happen both to me and I've done to others. Share a scripture with somebody and they look at you and their eyes go wide and they say, man, that was, that was on my mind this morning. And you're like, well, there's your confirmation, right? That, that's what it feels like to walk in the spirit. That's what it looks like to walk by the spirit. That is that inner thrill that you feel when you do what Jesus asked you to do and he shows up big time and the two come together in a moment. And when you experience that, and first of all, I hope all of you have had a moment like that. Maybe some have had more than others, and that's a reflection of time in the Lord or spiritual maturity, but I certainly hope no one's had none. That's a, that's a missed opportunity, because having those experiences builds your faith, it encourages you, but maybe most of all, it whets your appetite for more of that. It drives you forward in ministry because you get a sense of, man, if that's what this is like to serve the Lord, now I understand the, the joy of serving the Lord and that it's not a burden and his yoke is light. You know, it's let him do the work. I just show up. But here's the problem with this. If you're not careful, those successes can actually work against you. And what I mean by that is they become an opening for pride. And if it happens that way for you, it then impedes your future service. It's this great irony that serving with the Lord and seeing success in that service can propel you down one of two paths. It can encourage you to do more of the same or it can get in the way by putting you in a position to think you're doing it. And I think that's exactly what happened to these men. I think these disciples in this moment fell victim to their own pride in thinking they could do what they wanted to do and probably for the right reasons. Nonetheless, they were trying to do it on their own. And I knew Jesus expected this, and I say that because of what he told them after they came back having done it for the 70. I want you to listen to the conversation that ensued after that. It starts with one statement in verse 18 of Luke 10. Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now that's an encouraging word from him in response to their joy, and here's what he means by that. What he's saying is that as they were casting out those demons wherever they were, 
Jesus was watching Satan fall from heaven in that moment. Or another way to say it is, whenever you serve Jesus in his power, that is doing things according to his purpose and will, and you find success in ministry, in effect, you're participating in the defeat of Satan's dominion right then and there. So in that sense, Jesus is saying, as you did that work, it was like watching Satan fall from heaven. Good job, guys. All right, so that's, that's the first thing to understand is, you're participating in a much bigger work that isn't dependent on you, and it's certainly not coming out of your own power. You and I don't sit around and decide what God needs to get done. We don't, we don't it's not, I mean, let's be honest. We don't decide what to do. We don't have the power to do it. We don't have the means to accomplish it. Uh, Jesus, in the case of the 70, he did it all. He gave them the power. He told them where to go and told them what to do. You know, as I like to say, it's not about ability. It's about availability. Right? They went out. It all happened as he predicted. They came back, and they're excited about it. And his point is, you're participating in a bigger program of work, and I'm happy that you're doing it. But here's the challenge again. You can't sit back and say that you were working for Jesus. You weren't. You can't even say you're working with him. You didn't. Here's what you say. He worked through me. And that little subtle change in language is not just semantics, friends. It's easy to blur the lines and start to let that mind of yours creep into a thought that you brought something to the table as you worked with God in some setting. I'm not trying to diminish the value of your participation. Not at all. I'm just trying to help you keep it in the proper perspective. We can come to see ourselves, and, and you're going to listen to this and see if you're not in this sentence somewhere. If you're not careful as you succeed in ministry, you can come to see yourself in this way, that your method was the solution to the success, or your education, or your, your pedigree, or your training, or anything else. If you attribute your success in ministry to something that is mechanically about your life as a pastor, as a minister, as a volunteer, whatever it is, You've just stepped over that line. You've just put yourself in a position to credit your pride or build your pride up over what you did. There's no such place for that. It's never those things. It's always the Lord working through you. Look, if he can speak in Numbers 22 through a donkey's mouth, what exactly do I bring to this job? (laughs) Don't answer that out loud, please. Right? I love that he includes moments like that in Scripture because they keep you honest. If he, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if these do not cry out, the rocks will cry out. God doesn't even need a human being. He doesn't even need a living object. So what is it that we bring to the table? We bring an opportunity for us to be blessed by him working through us to his own glory. And trust me, friends, that's good enough. That's plenty good enough. So where does the conversation go next in that moment in Luke I'm talking about? Well, after he encourages them with that brief statement, I was watching Satan fall. Look at the next thing he says, and you'll see where his concern lies. Verse 19 of Luke 10, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What he says is this, he's saying this, he's saying, yes, you have power. Yes, I gave it to you, it's real, you can put it to work. It's not as though you're to take it for granted, yes. But when you think about what brings you joy, when you think about where you place the credit, do not rejoice in that power. Rejoice in my power. Because when he says, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven, what he's really saying is, rejoice in the work that I did to bring you salvation and to bring about everything that's come since then. 
The way I like to say it is, don't rejoice in what you do for him, rejoice in what he did for you, and that's his point there. We don't have the power to cast out demons. You don't. And by that, I don't mean it's not possible. I mean, even if you do it, it's not you. Right? You don't have the power to, to do anything. But you have all the power God gives you, which can be quite a bit. So the disciples should not have rejoiced that they were demonically, you know, they had power over the demonic world. They should have been rejoicing about what Jesus does for them. And if your mind stays there, here's the power of that. When your mind stays there, it puts a cap on presumption. You won't step into situations and say, oh, I got this. In the name of Jesus, I got this. Because your first thought will be, wait a minute, I don't know if Jesus wants me to get this. I don't know if this is Jesus' will. I don't know if he's asked me to do this. I need to find all that out before I know what to do. Because I can't decide for him. And I don't have my own power apart from him. All right, so with that background, the long background, granted, but let's go back to, to the main point of the study. You have the disciples now having tried and failed to perform a miracle. Jesus rebukes the father of the boy, and he's going to rebuke the crowd as well, and he's got his disciples as well to fix. So let's see how he fixes these three things, these three problems created by these presumptuous disciples. Verse 17, Matthew 17, 17. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. All right, so this is the solution to the crowd problem. Jesus reacts in disgust and frustration, and he says they're unbelieving and they're perverted. Those are harsh words, to be sure, but you need to understand why he's so upset if you're going to get the gist of what he's saying here. First, he says they're unbelieving. Why? Well, it ties back to chapter 12. Remember in that chapter when he casts out that mute demon previously, the crowd at that moment recognized what they saw. They said, this can't be the son of David. He just did the messianic miracle. But then the Pharisees explained it away as a work of Satan, right? And in the moment, what happened was the crowd agreed with the Pharisees' argument. They did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. So from that point forward, what they accepted was the story of the Pharisees. What was the story? That Satan will grant power to people to cast out his own demons. Again, as illogical as that is, that was the story they bought. Now, here you find exactly the same possession situation, and where did the crowd go at this point? They go to the disciples, asking the disciples to perform the same miracle. So think about this. What does that tell you about their beliefs? Because Jesus said they're unbelieving. What does it tell you that they went to the disciples seeking the same miracle? Here's what it says. First, it says they believed the Pharisees' explanation. Because if you believe them, then you would believe anyone potentially could do this miracle so long as Satan was giving them the power. If you don't believe the Pharisees and you believed Jesus, oh, this is because he was the Messiah, well, then you would never think to ask anyone else except the Messiah to do it because you would know only he could do it. So by going to someone other than Jesus, they tell you that they don't believe Jesus is Messiah. And then secondly, and this is the most stunning part of it to me, they were told that that demon was pushed out in chapter 12 because Satan did it, which means that they are now appealing to Satan. They are now seeking satanic power to get what they want. And that's why Jesus said they were perverted. The perversion was a willingness to work with the devil. God's people, Israel, apostate as they were, nonetheless, they were actually cozying up to demonic power, knowing that's what it was, because that's what they had been told, and that didn't bother them. 
Anytime that you trade favor with God for favor from the enemy, it's perversion. It's a perverted way of thinking. The devil's bargains, if you want to call it that, however something like that might come to pass, it's always the same kind of thing. It's a trade of something eternally glor- of eternal glory for something of earthly perversion. That's a terrible bargain. And that's what the crowd had done. And that's why Jesus says, you are unbelieving and you are perverted. And then he says, how long will I put up with this? And you get a sense in there, not only of frustration, but of the fact that he knew his time was running out with this generation. They're missing their opportunity. The Messiah is present with them, and it's going over their heads. And I think at some point, the humanity of Christ comes through in moments like this. He just gets frustrated. I can certainly understand that. I think we all can, right? When they tried to perform the miracle, the disciples added insult to this injury. And I think that's part of the frustration. Here are his disciples participating, maybe unknowingly, in the Pharisees' deception of these people because they lend credibility to the suggestion that anyone can perform this miracle merely by their willingness to try as opposed to saying, we can't do this, only the Messiah can do it. Don't you know Jesus is the Messiah? They introduce doubt into the minds of others. That, friends, is the impact of doing ministry in your own power. Have you not seen this? When people say, well, I can do such and such in the name of Jesus, you can do anything in the name of Jesus. Just call upon it and it will happen. And then you think, oh, maybe that's true. And then you do it and nothing works. Where does the doubt lie at that point? You might doubt the scripture. You might doubt the word of the Lord. You might doubt the Lord's power. You might doubt his love for you. You know what you're not doubting often? You're not doubting the stupidity of that advice, which is where the real problem is. In the process, these guys didn't just fail the opportunity to heal this boy, What they did was they made a witness of relying on worthless power, of justifying the request and introducing doubt. And you see the effects of what they did here in the crowd and in the man, the the father of this boy. Because Jesus has been reluctant to heal people publicly up until this point because as we noted after chapter 12, once the generation of that day had rejected Uh, Jesus as Messiah, he turned his attention away from public miracles and public teaching to only doing private miracles for those of faith. And here you have a situation in which faith is really not evident, and so normally Jesus would pass this by. But he can't pass it by now. The disciples have so messed it up and created such a bad witness, he's got to rectify it. And it starts by healing the boy. So in verse 17, after his expression of frustration, he says, sort of in my own words, oh, for crying out loud, bring him over here. Let's, let's, let's fix this starting with the kid, right? And he casts him out. Look, he doesn't ask for the name of the demon because he doesn't need to. He's the Messiah. And the boy is cured immediately. And in that process, what he's done is he has reestablished his testimony as Messiah. In effect, he repeated the example of chapter 12. I'm the one who does this. You know, think about what that means. So he reverses the presumption. He protects his own name. He reestablishes his own glory. There's a lesson in there for us too. You know, if you ever make the mistake of acting impetuously like the disciples did, thinking you can do things with your own power, seeking to serve Christ but in your own way, when you fail, as you will, you can expect that Jesus is gonna get that work done his own way, in his own timing, with or without you. Right? He's not dependent on us. But the problem is, though he still gains his glory, we miss the opportunity to be part of the work. 
And by the way, I'm not saying every time you fail in ministry is a proof that you weren't working with Jesus. No, that, we know that's not true either. There are times he puts us into a work which he wants to see come to some negative outcome, negative that is from our point of view, because in that trial, something good happens for us. So I'm not saying all successes are you know, Jesus and all failures are you didn't have Jesus. What I'm saying is this, when you don't have Jesus, you will fail. Because you're doing it in your own power, that's no power at all. Now, in the end, as he still gets his glory, he wins. We just don't want to be on the losing side of that by having missed the opportunity, all right? All right, so he's dealt with the crowd. Now he's got to deal with the Father. Mark is where we have to go again for this little piece, Mark 9.20. I'm just going to read a little further into what we read in Mark. In Mark 9.20, it says, They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love that line. The father asked Jesus, if you can help him, would you do something, please? And Jesus seizes on that statement, and he, he says, you know, this is revealing a lack of faith on your part. And he says, if I can? And then he adds, all things are possible to him who believes. Let's ask a couple of questions. Why is this man expressing doubt in Jesus' ability? Because if you think about what he already knows, why would he have doubt? I mean, remember, he had already been taught, like all Jewish people in that day, that only the Messiah could exercise a mute demon. He knew that. And then he also knows Jesus has done this. I doubt that was a secret by now. I'm sure that the news of that had gone far and wide. And so Jesus has already cured somebody under exactly the same circumstances. So isn't that enough to know that he can do it? I mean, if he's done it once, why would you say to him, if you can? It's sort of a strange statement, right? And what Jesus means when he says all things are possible for those who believe, what he's saying is it's possible for me to do anything So if you believe that I am who I say I am, why would you doubt that this is possible? That's what he's saying. And it's a good question. If you believe Jesus is Messiah, everything is possible. Now, it's it's important to understand something Jesus is not saying, though, that I need to address, because it's out there. You may have heard it. It is not saying we can do anything we want because we believe in Jesus. All right, that's not faith. That's heresy. That's not truth. You cannot do anything you want just because you believe in Jesus. And if you have any doubts about the truth of that statement, please be my guest. Go out there today and try to do some miraculous things. Tell me how it goes. I'm not a cynic, but I'm pretty sure you're going to fail at most of what you think you can go do because we know instinctively it doesn't work that way, does it? So anyone who tells you that you can do anything if you just have enough faith, what that person is saying is, you know why you didn't do what you wanted? Because it's your problem. It's a complete cop-out, and it's heresy. By the way, if it were true that you can do anything just because you have belief in Jesus, then the disciples would have been able to cast out that mute demon. They have faith. So clearly that's not the issue. We have zero power apart from Jesus. Uh, John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me, uh, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, so 
Now you're seeing the devastating impact that the disciples' mistake has had here on this father. They have introduced doubt into this father's mind because it's my supposition that with what he knew about Jesus already, he would have been confident in Jesus' ability, but for the fact that his disciples just failed. And in their failure to do the work, and I might imagine that they were saying things like, in the name of Jesus, I command you out, spirit. And they hear that, and now Jesus shows up, and the man is thinking, I'm not so sure anymore what's possible, but if you can help me here, that's the effect. When we work presumptuously, when we go out of this building and start talking about what we can do in the name of Jesus, and things don't come together the way we thought they would, there are people around you who are losing the confidence they might have otherwise had in Jesus or in the Word of God or in Christianity or in something because of that poor testimony. That's the negative impact of people who presume what they should or could do with God. Notice in Mark, uh, verse 24 of Mark, he says, the man responds to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever felt that way? What I mean by that is part of you knows that you should trust Jesus implicitly for everything. And at the same time, another part of you still has doubt, still has fear or worry that he won't do it. Where does that doubt and worry come from? Well, we know Jesus is capable of all things. We know he's God. And like this man, why should we ever question what he can do? Well, I think the answer is in our case, we don't doubt his ability. What we doubt is his will. Does he want to do it for us? You know, we know he can do it. The question is, will he do it for us? And it's natural to have that concern. I will tell you, as you grow in your walk with Christ, as you become more spiritually mature, you stop having that moment quite as often because you begin to know instinctively what his will is. You're already there with him, so you're not asking for things that aren't his will. More and more often, you're already where he is. But that's a maturity issue. That comes with time. When we talk about people who lack faith, a Christian who's you know, needs greater faith, really what we're saying is they need to have greater maturity or they need to have a greater testimony. We're not saying that their faith is in question. But that's not the issue in this case. That is, this man is not questioning whether it's Jesus' will. He was truly questioning whether it was Jesus' ability to do this miracle because of what the disciples had done in introducing that doubt. I think that's why Jesus takes pity on the man in this case and does the miracle. So as he solves the problem of the boys indwelling, the, the demon indwelling the boy, he has first corrected the crowd through a rebuke. He is now emboldened or strengthened the faith of the man by correcting the mistake of the disciples, showing that yes, in fact, I do have this power. So he solved those two problems. What about the disciples? <laughs> the guys who started all this. Well, now he's got to solve their problem, and that's where we finish this morning. Verse 19 of Matthew. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? To which I would say, duh, but that is why I'm not Jesus. Verse 20, he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, For truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed and you say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So they're outside the hearing of the crowd, they're in a private moment, and the disciples come to him and say, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Uh, That that is an amazing question to me because they themselves know what he did back in chapter 12. What has happened? I think it's because they had that other experience where they went out and cast out demons and they've lost sight of the fact that that miracle was so unique. And Jesus says, here's the reason, guys, the smallness of your faith. Now, we need to sit on that for just a second because if you want a place in this passage where there's a lot of bad teaching, here's ground zero. Smallness of faith. 
Let me ask you a question. How can faith be large or small? Faith is not a a scale. Faith is binary. You either have it or you don't. In, In respect to Jesus. You either have faith in Jesus or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. There's no in between. There's no halfway. And as a result, you can't measure faith. It doesn't come in ounces or pounds or degrees. Faith is present or it's not. So when Jesus says there's smallness of their faith, you have to ask himself, well, what in the world could he be talking about? And the answer to that comes from remembering that faith does not exist by itself. Faith requires an object. You cannot say, I have faith. That is an incomplete sentence. You have to tell me what you have faith in. And depending on what you have faith in completely changes the meaning of that sentence and the value of it, for that matter. You place your faith in something. And friends, the something you put your faith in, that's the thing that possesses the power. That's where the power is. It's not in your faith that there is power. It's power in the thing your faith is in. And if you place your faith, for example, in yourself, like if I put faith in myself, what I'm saying is I'm relying on my own power. If I put faith in the government, what I'm saying is I trust in the government to help me. If I put faith in the creator, I'm trusting in his power by definition. So when Jesus says you have smallness of faith to these men, he's saying you have placed your faith in something very small, something of little power, and as a result, you have little faith. Conversely, if you put your faith in something large, something of great power, then you have great faith. So he was not describing the amount of faith because that's not sensible. He's describing here where the faith is placed. And uh, if you have any doubt about my interpretation, you only have to look at verse 20 to see that I'm right. Because in verse 20, Jesus says, you can have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a way of making a a bit of a, a, a hyperbolic comparison. He's simply saying, if you're worried about your degree of contribution to this problem, Don't worry about that. You can have faith the smallest increment you can possibly imagine because it doesn't matter where your faith is in a scale. It matters where your faith is in terms of the object. But if you have it in the right thing, you can move a mountain. That's the key. And of course, if a mountain could be moved by your faith, that is, if you could know that God has asked you to speak to a mountain and in the speaking to it, it would literally physically move. If you knew the Lord was leading you to do that and it actually happened, when it was over, where would you put the credit? Would you think, oh, look what I did? Or would you obviously know, well, God just moved that mountain, right? That's where the power in that faith comes in. You put a little faith in something very powerful. And that's why it happened. Notice, in this case, what these men did was they put power in themselves by virtue of their thinking they could cast out a demon by themselves. And as so, it was a very small thing. They put power in or faith in themselves and they had no power, so it was very little faith in that respect. Notice verse 21, Jesus says, this kind of demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. And what is prayer and fasting when you do it? What is it? It's a petitioning of God. So it's effectively what he's saying is, only God can do this. You gotta ask him to do this one. That is, it's a messianic miracle. You're not possible to do this. You have to ask me to do it. If you had put your faith in me to do this, it could have happened. You put your faith in yourself to do it, smallness of faith gets you nowhere. A little faith accomplishes nothing because we've picked the wrong object. The crowd, the father of that boy, and the disciples 
all struggled to put faith in the right object, and the result was failure, confusion, deception, disillusionment. The crowd, where did they put their faith? They put their faith in Satan and in his power. Where did the Father put his faith? In the power of his disciples. And where did the disciples put their faith? In themselves. Zero, zero, zero. Where you put your faith matters. Where you put your trust matters. And I'm not speaking here about those who would think about faith in terms of salvation. I assume I'm talking to a crowd of believers. Our eternity has already been settled in our faith in Jesus, yes. But what we depend on now for the power and the authority to serve him will determine the fruitfulness of our walk today. So while we may have a certainty of our future again, the question for those who walk by faith is, what are you depending on now? Are you putting your faith in his power? That is, are you depending on him to do things through you? Or have you sort of launched off on your own and you said, I'll see you when I die, and I got this from here? We don't say that, but we do that sometimes. As Paul says in Philippians 2.12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, works at, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what this is about. We're serving in his power to glorify him, knowing that he can do it all, we do nothing. Just keep thinking about that as you go through your week in the work that he calls you to do. Depend on him, look for him, follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you up front, Father, for the work you do through us. What a glory, what a pleasure, what a joy it is, Father, when we have an opportunity to step out and see the result of your work through us, and it encourages us, and we ask for that this week. Father, I ask for, for this flock that is assembled before you, that for each person here today, that you would encourage them through some opportunity this week, and as you work through them and they see that fruit, Father, let it strengthen their walk with you, as we would say, strengthening their faith. And then, Father, protect them from pride as you have done for so many and will do again. Help us to know when we do see success that it was only you and let us glorify you for it and strengthen us through that as well. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.